You're listening to Method to the Madness, a 30-minute show about the innovative spirit of the Bay Area. I'm your host, Ali Nazar. And innovation is usually born from trying to solve some kind of problem. And one of the biggest problems we have facing us in the Bay Area is earthquakes. We've got the San Andreas Fault. We've got the Hayward Fault going right underneath the East Bay Hills, directly under Memorial Stadium here on the beautiful UC Berkeley campus. And I started to wonder, what kind of innovative techniques and technologies do we have in the Bay Area to deal with this imminent problem of a huge catastrophic earthquake? So I have two interviews for you today. One is with Brad Agard, a geophysicist from the USGS that's created some really interesting and incredible 3D models that you can see on our website at www.methodtothemadness.org that simulate a large event on the Hayward Fault. And then we speak with John McPartland from the BART Board of Directors, who tells us about BART's plans to keep the Bay Area running and in particular keep the Trans Bay Tube operational in the event of an earthquake. Stay with us. Let's start off by just saying uh, your name and your you know, the rank name, rank scale <laughs> number type thing. Brad Agard. Uh, I'm a research geophysicist at the USGS in Menlo Park. Okay. And do you want to just give me a little bit about your background? Uh, so my background is in earthquake modeling, um, concentrating on the dynamics of rupture, how faults actually slip in earthquakes as well as the ground motions that are produced by the seismic waves radiated from the rupture. Okay. So um, would you mind giving us a little bit of history on kind of the, that your part of the modeling, kind of where it's come from in the past and where we are right now? So uh, people have been modeling earthquakes in a variety of methods for, you know, several decades. Um, and with the advent of uh, modern computers in sort of the 80s and 90s, um, the ability to be able to capture more sophisticated effects in earthquake uh, ground motions has increased significantly. Um, and within the past uh, couple decades with supercomputers, now we can do things in 3D that we could only do in 2D uh, before. And so now we can do uh, large uh, uh, simulations of earthquakes for the damaging earthquakes, the ones we really care about, so magnitude 7 and above um, earthquakes, and we can capture their 3D effects. So we can we actually create a model of the earth of volume and propagate the, uh, the rupture through the earth and then compute all the seismic waves radiated out through the 3D structure. So um, as the geology varies from place to place and is a function of depth into the earth, we can capture those effects. Um, and it really takes advantage of several decades worth of work in terms of actually determining what those properties are based on mapping, uh, remote sensing, um, as well as seismic studies of 
probing uh, the Earth using uh, both passive and active uh, source experiments. So in some cases, we can just sit there and monitor you know, the waves from earth, small earthquakes that have been generated and infer what the geologic structure is. But then there's also been specific studies of creating uh, ref- refraction and refraction lines like those used in the oil industry across various sections of the Bay Area. And all that information gets assembled into our 3D model, which then we can use in these uh, 3D computer simulations. Okay, great. Well, let's talk about the model. That, this is really what caught my attention. I was doing some research for this story. And these are really incredible models that you've built. And right where Calyx, I think, is right there. <laughs> so uh, we w- I'd like to understand this a little bit first for the listeners. So um, how did you go about um, just coming up with the idea for doing these models? Um, well, we really, I mean, we've been doing sort of 3D models for about 10 years or more. Um, and I've been doing models for about that long. It really started way back in graduate school for me. And, you went uh, to Caltech, is that right? Yes, I went to Caltech, and um, that, that was in the mid-'90s, and that's when really the, the supercomputers became powerful enough that we could actually start to do these 3D models with uh, realistic variations of the material properties. Um, and uh, leading up to that, um, the centennial of the 1906 earthquake we made a big push to in the Bay Area to be able to improve our 3D structure, to be able to do simulations of events on the San Andreas Fault. And so after we did uh, 1906-like events on the San Andreas Fault, the next logical step was to do them for the Hayward Fault because it is sort of the other big major player uh, fault in the San Francisco Bay Area. Okay, so when you decide let's do... Um, you know, let's do a 3D model of the Hayward Fault. How do you begin something like that? So we began by spending a couple months of the modelers, um, myself, as well as other people who we collaborated to do the, the modeling, the 3D modeling of the ground motions. Uh, we sat down with the geologists as well as the people who dig trenches across the fault, the paleoseismologists and sort of other geophysicists within the USGS and some of our external uh, collaborators at uh, Lawrence Livermore and Berkeley. And we developed sort of our what our scenarios were, a suite of scenarios where we'd have magnitude, large events of magnitude like 6.8 to 7.1 for the Hayward Fault, incorporating uh, the known history of earthquakes on the faults, um, how much slip we would expect in those events, and the length of rupture. Um, and this is... Uh, that's where we really looked at sort of past events as, where, as well as, you know, what is the latest information about how, say, the Hayward Fault may connect to the Rogers Creek Fault under San Pablo Bay. And would they go together? Um, and if they went together, you know, would it generally be, uh, would the rupture need to start sort of underneath the bay or would it be able to make sort of a jump from one fault to the other? And we eliminated the possibility that, uh, in terms of considering the most likely scenario of it having actually jump across to actually starting uh, under San Pablo Bay if it did rupture both of them. Yeah. Um, but generally, we believe that the two faults, in most cases, are going to operate independently. They may have events relatively close in time because the stresses on one will, uh, are, when they're relieved in a large event, will actually increase the stresses on the other because they basically lie end-to-end. Um, but in most cases, we would expect them to actually rupture in separate 
earthquakes. This is Method to the Madness, a 30-minute show about the innovative spirit of the Bay Area. I'm your host, Ali Nazar, and I'm speaking with Brad Agard, a geophysicist with the USGS in Menlo Park, who's telling me about a model he's made, a 3D model, that simulates a 6.8 earthquake on the Hayward Fault. Can you take me through this? Well, the model we're looking at is the right now is a 6.8 with a um, center in Berkeley. Uh, we're actually well. We're actually looking at the ground shaking in Berkeley, but the rupture in this case starts down in Fremont. Okay. And so we're watching the color showing the intensity of the shaking, and so this light color is what we call the P wave. Um, and it's coming through, and that's where you'd just be able to start to feel a little bit of shaking. And then now we're about 17 seconds into the rupture, and then we get this strong S wave, and that's where the intensity of shaking increases significantly. Um, and that's where you'd sort of an, a, a person would have the sensation of rather vi- relatively violent shaking uh, in the case of a large event like this, this close to the rupture. Um, and when we look at our 3D view, we see um, some important effects effects. If you look along the fault, the intensity of shaking is higher. And then as you go away from the fault, the intensity of shaking is generally decreasing. But then there's areas like the Livermore area where we have a basin that extends the strong shaking away from the fault. And then along the Hayward Fault, we actually uh, have uh, less rigid material on the east side of the fault. And so the intensity of shaking is slightly higher there than it is on the west side. Um, These 3D simulations, we don't have the very thin bay mud, which sits right along the edge of the bay. And so uh, when you include those effects, then the intensity of the shaking in these models would actually increase a little more. Um, So that would tend to slightly even out the shaking on the east and west sides of the fault. But in general, uh, with the softer sediments, um, and this is due to uh, the fact that the areas east of the Hayward Fault between the sort of the foothills all the way into the Great Valley is an area that's been highly deformed over uh, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years. And that sort of broken up the rock and made it uh, less rigid, whereas underneath the San Francisco Bay, um, once you get rid of that very thin, shallow sediment that's quite soft, then you get into much uh, more confident rock quicker than you do east of the Hayward Fault. So does that mean, so on the Hayward Fault where it's more broken down, it's less... Uh, the impact would be less because it's more flexible? or Well, the more flexible means that uh, it acts a little bit more like jello. And so it, it tends to, uh, you can think of it as being a softer material that uh, is allowed to move around. By being sort of more flexible, it tends to move more when the same amplitude wave uh, enters that medium. When, it, when that amplitude wave enters a medium, if it goes into a softer medium, it actually grows in amplitude. If it goes into a more rigid medium, it actually decreases in amplitude. So uh, that a less rigid material means that it, it's going actually going to amplify the shaking. Um, and so, you know, if you were to be your sort of your most desirable location is on bedrock, which is very hard, uh, it means you're going to sort of move maybe with sort of higher frequencies rather than sort of uh, but you're going to move less than if you're on a, a, a less rigid material. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, the Hayward Fault, it looks it's going right along the foothills. It looks like it goes right under the Berkeley campus. So it goes right underneath Berkeley Stadium, comes up along uh, the base of the foothills, and then runs into San Pablo Bay at Point Pinole. Um, and then running down, it runs down along... Uh, 
the base of the foothills from Hayward down into Fremont. Um, and then it sort of peters out in some respects at the surface. But then at depth, it continues and uh, migrates over towards more even with the Calaveras Fault. Um, things at the southern end, um, uh, sort of just east of San Jose, it becomes quite complicated at the surface. There's a lot of secondary faults in between the Hayward Fault and the Calaveras Fault. Yeah, I, I follow one of those earthquake bots on Twitter, and there seems like there's always a little something going on down under San Jose, a little bit south of San Jose. There's a lot of different things down there, right? Yeah, so there's uh, there's sections of the Calaveras Fault that have a lot of small earthquakes, and the Calaveras Fault also is, has, uh, once you go farther south down near Morgan Hill, tends to have more what we call creep, in that the stress is being relieved almost continuously by just slow motion of the fault. And so it's not as prone to large earthquakes. And that's also true for sections of the Hayward Fault near the surface where you tend to have uh, creep going on. So there's some sections uh, in Fremont um, up through Hayward and then some sections near Berkeley where uh, you have offset curbs, offset walls, um, and, but these are primarily limited to just the very shallow most, uh, about mile to two miles of the, of the ground. And underneath it's locked. And we know from uh, historical records that uh, in 1868 there was a very uh, large earthquake magnitude, about 6.8 event on the Hayward Fault. So it's, even though it has these unique features of slowly creeping at the surface, it's still capable of a large earthquake. And that was the last major earthquake on the Hayward Fault, right? Yes. And uh, 1868 was the last one we know, sort of a definitive date. Um, and Mark Twain wrote about it in Roughing It. Um, oh, he did. So there's a there's several like eyewitness descriptions. Okay. Um, and before that, then it, uh, the previous event to that was somewhere around 150 years, but we don't have historical accounts, um, so we don't know the precise date. And so our, our uncertainties start to grow um, in terms of precisely when the last few events have happened. Um, but we do have a record of 12 events over the last uh, 2,000 years for the Hayward Fault. Um, in Fremont. Um, and they're approximately every 150 years or something like that? About 150 years, uh, ranging from anywhere from about 130 years to 170 years. And we're now 141 years since... Yeah. Right in the sweet spot. Right, right <laughs> Somewhere near the middle of the time we expect uh, okay. a Hayward Fault event. You are listening to KALX Berkeley. This is Method to the Madness, a 30-minute show about the innovative spirit of the Bay Area. I'm your host, Ali Nazar, and we've been talking to Brad Agard from the USGS in Menlo Park, who's created some cutting-edge models on what the major earthquake that's about to happen on the Hayward Fault will look like. Now we turn our attention to preparation, so we know this earthquake's imminent. How are we doing on getting ready for it? And searching around, I found that BART actually has received an innovation award in 2010 from the Northern California chapter of the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute for its efforts in its earthquake safety program to protect the system in case of a catastrophic event on the Hayward Fault. So I reached out to BART to learn more about the retrofit project that began in 2004. Uh, My name is John McPartland. I am 
BART director, uh, but I'm also the vice president of the BART board of directors, and I'm also on the Seismic Safety Commission for the state of California. The original retrofit was designed simply to have portions of the system survive and other portions of the system to be able to be operational. There is a magnitude and cost of about four times in order to be able to improve from survivability to operability. And the reason is you have to have much uh, stronger base structures in the pillars, and the list goes on and on and on. The biggest risk of the entire system was the Transbay tube. Uh, and that has since that was the first target for our retrofit. And it uh, turns out that not only were we able to stabilize the, the weakest length, which was the, the juncture of um, the Transbay tube as it transitioned into the peninsula itself, uh, but in addition to that, the bay was a lot more stable than we thought it was, and we saved a great deal of money. Second issue along those lines is that because of the recession, a lot of the contracts that have been coming in um, are coming in, continue to come in at 20 to 25% below the estimated, estimated bid. And the rationale behind that is that a lot of these construction companies aren't trying to make a real profit. They're just trying to make payroll. And so we've saved money there. Between the combination of those two things with the amount of money that we have saved, what we are doing now is we are increasing the amount of operability sections so that, for instance, the uh, Transbay or the uh, Oakland Y, which is the Oakland underground area, basically exits going in the direction of East Oakland right at about... Um, 5th Ave and East 7th. And from that point on, as soon as it goes aerial, goes above grade, it has uh, a survivability quotient in the original design. Now we have enough money to be able to retrofit that for an operability all the way out to the Coliseum Station. Hasn't been done yet, but we have the money. It's on the books. It's planned. We're going to do it. That's uh, very interesting. So a combination of factors has made the original bond money go further. Yes. Yep. Um, How do you determine in terms of um, priority levels for survivability versus operational operability? Um, It's a big system. How do you determine which ones? Is there there a ranking that BART has in terms of what parts are more important than other parts? Yes. And the ranking basically is, now here's where we end up going beyond just servicing the local community. And what we're looking at now is um, how we can end up serving as a better component or partner with regional disaster planning. For instance, if we ended up comparing, now understand that the Oakland Coliseum was is not designed as a refuge of any kind in the event of a... Uh, major earthquake, but let's just use a comparison of the Colosseum and the Superdome. Now, the Superdome was a refuge of last resort. There was somewhere between 
60 and 100,000 people in there that had no hope and no way out. If we had, correction, when we have this catastrophic earthquake that is going to, for a short period of time, but uh, it depends on, short is a relative term, depends on whether you're in the middle of it or not, whether it's going to be uh, two days or two weeks, there's going to be a complete collapse of the infrastructure. Can't use the freeways, rubble in the streets, uh, no water, no communications, no electricity, and no way out unless you want to walk. Now, realize that if you had those populations that were gravitating towards the Oakland Coliseum, now all of a sudden the Coliseum is empty because if we've got electricity and we've got rail, we're moving people a thousand at a time. And we're taking them to outlying areas, either on the line that goes to Livermore or on the line that ends up going to Richmond or to Concord or to San Francisco. Because there's five ways into the East Bay. And that means there's five ways in, there's five ways out. We can end up taking refugees out. We can end up bringing, we can end up bringing resources in. If I could give you a visualization of what I personally experienced during the Loma Prieta earthquake. I was the staging officer for, uh, as a battalion chief in the Oakland Fire Department, I was a staging officer for all the apparatus during the Cyprus collapse. And the, initially, we had, within four hours, we had apparatus, fire apparatus that was stacked up four blocks deep and a half a block wide down the side streets. It was total gridlock, and crews were standing there waiting to go to work. And we put them to work, and we tried to do all the rescue, but over the next two and a half days, the only way that we could end up changing crews was to have a pathway to bring a bus in and have crews simply exchange with one another and take uh, fresh crews in and tired crews out. And we did that for three, four days. We did that until Saturday when Buck Helms was found. And visualize that same kind of quagmire or gridlock or collapse of infrastructure and inability to get people out and resources in and take it from Fremont, and that's certainly not for the entire things, but in patches from Fremont all the way to Richmond. How the hell are you going to end up doing that? How are you going to get the, the injured out and get the, the, uh, the resources in? If we've got BART running, we can do that. This is KALX Berkeley. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a 30-minute show about the innovative spirit of the Bay Area. I'm Ali Nazar, and we're talking to Vice President John McPartland of the BART Board of Directors. BART recently won an Innovation in Exemplary Practice and Earthquake Risk Reduction Award from the Northern California chapter of the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute. And I was asking Vice President McPartland about this award and the retrofit that's going on on BART right now. And specifically, I wanted to know about the Transbay Tube. What would happen in the event of a huge earthquake and what would happen to the people underneath the bay? First of all, the, the two danger areas in the Transbay Tube. Transbay Tube is three and a half miles long. And you end up having about 57, I think 58 sections, don't quote me on that, that are 330 feet long. And each one of those sections then was put into place, uh, welded, and put into a trench 
that was dug in the bottom of the bay. And then they turned around and we ended up uh, putting ballast on top of it. The big fear that we had was that the bottom of the bay was potentially unstable in the event of an earthquake and we would have to uh, build a better structure to hold it in place. The Loma Prieta earthquake caused a lateral shift at the on the peninsula side, the two flex points that uh, were critical were at the Oakland vent structure and at the San Francisco vent structure. And at the San Francisco vent structure, um, there had been a lateral shift that uh, moved the alignment or the tolerance to uh, a very short distance to within uh, inches of its maximum tolerance for additional lateral shift. That was our first target. Um, not only did we end up fixing that first, I actually went down there and watched them do the, the last piece of work that put it into uh, operation and basically retrofitted that particular section. Additionally, we have found that there has been no lateral shift at all on the Oakland side because uh, basically we're pretty stable on the Oakland side. The Hayward Fault is a long ways away, number one. And number two, it's a continuum of merit. The term that they end up to using in geology is uh, uh, merit sand. So the consistency of the soil that actually goes to that portion where we end up having the vent structure is continuous. And so we haven't had any movement there at all. Then the third section, like I said, was that we didn't have to do any um, retrofit at all during, for the entire length of the tube because it's in uh, uh, solid silt and a lot of ballast on top of it, and that's not going anywhere. If I had to be anywhere in the BART system personally, and I worked in the safety department and did a lot of training in the Transbay tube, if I had to be uh, anywhere when a major earthquake hits, I would probably prefer, I would prefer, to be in the Transbay tube. And the reason is that if you're in the underground, then um, your train can't derail. It'll slam one side and slam the other, but it's not, well, yes, it can derail, but uh, it's not going to end up uh, doing nearly as much damage. And I have full confidence in the system being A, watertight, and B, providing enough power for us to be able to get out of there. It's also nice that we've got a lower gallery that we can end up walking through, although it, it is a long walk. So there you have it. You can put those caught underwater in the Transbay tube fears to rest, courtesy of Vice President McPartland and Bart. But we should all have a healthy dose of fear because this earthquake is going to happen. And I asked the question to Brad Agar, the geophysicist from the USGS, about what he tells people to do in preparation for an earthquake. Taking it out of the science world, um, you're an expert in this, is what you've dedicated your life to studying. Um, so what advice do you give to normal people when they ask you, if you're at a party and someone's like, what should I do for an earthquake? What do you say? Um, well, the key is to be prepared to have food and water on hand um, and have a plan of uh, how you're going to contact family members. And if you can't contact them, do you have a sort of, an understanding of 
how are you going to handle rel relatives, children that may be dependent upon you? Um, because it may be difficult, for example, particularly difficult to get across the bay uh, if there's a large event because uh, bridges may be out. Maybe even if the bridges survive, then uh, along the edges there may be extensive liquefaction that causes difficulties and disruption of actually getting onto the bridge. Um, and our water supplies, uh, especially for Hayward events, most of our water um, comes across the Hayward and either in one form or another through pipelines, um, as well as uh, our power. A lot of our power comes across the Hayward Fault. Um, much of those lifelines have been retrofitted, um, but then the distributions, the secondary distribution systems, a lot of those are still quite vulnerable um, to disruption in earthquakes. So having enough water and food on hand, um, uh, up till recently people were saying 72 hours, and now it's uh, ideally it's, it's a week. Um, because, and it's not so much that you wouldn't be able to get any water after 72 hours, but it's going to be a lot more convenient if you have it on hand and don't have to, you know, perhaps hike a couple miles or, or you go to a, a centralized distribution point where uh, quantities may be very limited. This has been Method to the Madness on KALX Berkeley. I'm your host, Ali Nazar. And I'd like to thank our guests today, Brad Agar from the USGS and John McParlin from BART, both of whom showed us that the innovative spirit of the Bay Area is alive and well in dealing with the problem of the imminent earthquake on the Hayward Fault. You can learn more about this story at our website at methodtothemadness.org. 